Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, we have on the show an independent filmmaker from Ironton, Ohio, who is also the creator and executive producer of Extant on CBS starring Halle Berry, Mr. Mickey Fisher. Thanks for coming on the show, Mickey. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Um, since last we spoke, uh, a lot's been going on on Extant and in your life, I'm sure. Um, but first off, before we get started with any of that, we just like to get to know you a little. Um, I know you're sure. from Ironton, but how did you get into filmmaking and, and where did you learn or study film? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you're from a little little town in Ohio. It's on the very southern tip of Ohio. And uh, there was, as you can imagine, it's not a, um, you know, a hotbed of... Uh, production and so I right. actually grew up doing shows you know doing theater and that's how I got my start I was doing theater I actually played sports uh, all year round until I was in about sixth grade when I did my first musical and then I just started doing all the shows in high school at a community theater and I went to college for uh to major in musical theater at this college called uh, the conservatory of music in Cincinnati um and they have a great musical theater program and we're kind of known for for turning out you know a lot of Broadway stars Oh. Things like that. So I went to school for musical theater, and then while I was there, I started writing, and and having a lot more interest in writing and directing. I actually, I think it was kind of spurred by going to see independent films because it's the first time in my life there I was near an art house, and I'd never like the the theater I grew up near was in across the river in Ashland, Kentucky, and it had three screens, and it basically played the same movies you know week after week in the summertime. All the blockbusters they would stay there for weeks on end. And they were always like the biggest movies. And, and I'm, I remember going to see E.T. over and over and over in the summer or, or uh, when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out of that kind of stuff. But when I went to Cincinnati to college, I discovered this art house theater called the Esquire. And it was where I saw like the Brothers McMullen and El Mariachi. And there was another ho- uh, house downtown called Real Movies where I first saw like Reservoir Dogs and, and things like that. And that just it made me so more so much more interested in, in writing or at least as interested in writing as I was um, in in acting and also because I was a character guy and uh, my professors everybody would say you know you're a character guy you're not really going to work as an actor until you're in your 40s and I mm-hmm. thought well you know screw that I'm, I'm, I'll write my own stuff you know if, I'm, if there are roles that fit me I'll just start writing I'll write my own things and, and that's really a big part of why I started writing and so by the time I got out of college I, I more, much more wanted to be a writer than I wanted to be an actor mm-hmm. um, but I actually didn't go to school for, for screenwriting or anything like or, or filmmaking I, I basically spent a few years after college kind of learning myself uh, about about screenwriting I did the thing that probably everybody does yeah, I bought the, the, the Sid Field book first <laughs> um, and then I started studying a lot of like I got really into the all the Joseph Campbell uh, work and those uh, those kind of things that that was a huge influence on me for a long time just because I was uh, a big you know, fan of mythology anyway and it all sort of made sense to me um, I did that for a few years and then I got the Robert Rodriguez, you know, that uh, Rebel Without a Crew book, and mm-hmm. it hit me at just the right time, and, and I was writing this this feature-length screenplay, and I had all these friends who were actors because I went to school to be an actor, and I said, look, let's let's make this movie. I'll, I'll Let's do it in my hometown. I'll write it around everything that we know we can get for free, and, um, you know, houses, locations, cars, whatever it is, we can probably get all of it for free. I know all these great actors, and, and um, so I pulled everybody together, and... and that's how I made my first movie when I was 28, and and, I, and and the same thing. Like that was kind of my film school was actually making my first independent film. Mm-hmm. Now you went on to make a couple other films, including, from what I've heard, using Indiegogo to sort of 
finance them? How did you make the transition from sort of independent filmmaker to television writer? I mean, you obviously you entered the Tracking B uh, TV pilot contest. That's sort of where your big break happened, where you were a finalist. But what made you sort of make that transition from, again, uh, growing up with film and independent film and making independent film to I'm going to write a TV pilot? Well, I'll tell you, the, there's like a convergence of a number of things. Um, one, I've been writing stuff for a long time that I, I was writing with an eye towards being able to make it myself. So a lot of the things that I was writing, you know, screenplays and, and um, even I, well, I actually didn't really start doing the pilots until I came out of here, but, but they were all written to be like low budget, things I could shoot, guerrilla style, for no money. And because of that, they were very small. And they're, you know, maybe big in their ideas, but very small production-wise. And, and they're very kind of unique niche ideas. And, and there were things that I loved, but they, but they weren't necessarily the things that I would rush out to see on the weekends at the movies. And so I'm like, I'm a, I'm a genre guy. I, I'm the first guy in line every weekend when there's something with guys in uh, capes or tights or aliens <laughs> or, you know, those kind of things. Like I'm, I'm, I see those things the very first weekend and every time. And so, so I told my girlfriend, I was like a year, a couple of years ago, he was referred before we moved out here. And I was like, you know, I need to, I need to focus on right, the, the things I would want to see and the things that I would go to see as opposed to the things I want to make. And I'm, I was getting less interested in directing my own stuff at the time. And the whole reason I started was directing was, was to get myself out there more as a writer mm. and, you know, to try to try to break in the doors. I never had a, a great love for directing and I wasn't particularly good at it. it, it uh, and, and even any one element of it really. And so I, so the other thing that happened at the time was I had been working uh, at this theater called the Jenny Wiley Theater in uh, Kentucky, and I was getting hired there every autumn to write a Halloween show for them. And it started with this um, adaptation of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. They hired me to direct it because I was that was kind of my day job. I was directing theater and writing commission uh, works for theaters. And so the, the artistic directors, look, we want to do The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, but we don't really like the script that we have and we start rehearsals in a month. I said, look, let me give me a chance to write my own version of it and I'll, I'll tailor it to the theater. And, and if you like it, then, then that's what we'll go with. If not, we'll go with, you know, the other one that you, that we know other people have done. And so it worked and it was a big hit. And, uh, the schools, it played for schools in the morning and then it played for general audiences at night. And it was a big success for that Halloween. And so they asked me back before I even left, they're like, what do you want to do next year? And then I did Frankenstein the next year, and then we did Dracula the next. And every year it got bigger and better, and and more and more people came. And and it got to where people were, we knew people were going to come and see the show in the holiday slot. So the fourth year I said, look, let's do something original. You know, if we know they're going to come back, and and I can do it that'll still be based around something that the students can use for school. You know, we'll do it around like a um, a, an urban legend, and they can learn about urban legends. And let's do an original an original piece. So I wrote this play called Ghost Stories. And and it was the biggest success of all because I was able to really tailor it to to the audience and it was a and it was big general audience stuff and it was genre stuff, scary and fun and um and then we did one more uh, called Dracula and Tombstone it was right at the height of all the the mashup the genre mashup stuff uh-huh. and it was basically Dracula versus Wyatt Earp <laughs> and um, so after five years of doing that like that was the last thing I did right before I moved here so so I really got into writing the genre stuff that I was that I was already a big fan of. And so that it all kind of hit this convergence point when I sat down to write a pilot here. So I, you know, I, I 
taking time to break down pilots and to break down TV scripts and and I was watching shows and breaking them down, you know, on paper, almost like taking apart an engine. And uh, so when I sat down to write my very first pilot, I I wrote the thing that I would want to watch, and 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 it was all kind of a culmination of of, of all those events at the same time. Um, and just to touch base on something that you just mentioned, that's something that I think that some newer writers don't really grasp in terms of when they're trying to either write a spec for a fellowship or create their own pilot just writing it from sort of scratch as opposed to taking some TV pilots shows that you um, are either going to write the spec for or that are similar in genre and similar in pacing, similar in tone to what you want to write and breaking them down and seeing how they work. Like you said, breaking down an engine. I think that that's something that a lot of writers should probably do. Uh, newer writers I'm talking about that, that may have a, a harder time dealing with understanding and dealing with structure. Uh, and, and finding out what yeah, makes those things you know, work. I think that's a really important, I think it's a really important thing. I, you know, I actually, I, when I say that I wrote my first pilot, I actually wrote this thing a few years ago that was a, it was an animated pilot. And I actually got it to um, to a guy who was doing, uh, heading up the uh, original programming animation for Spike TV. Hmm. And, and they were interested. It was kind of one of those, actually just cold called it. It was the very first time that I'd ever done that, that had ever worked. Cause I sent out queries for years and, and i never even got a single response. And, um, and then one day I called this, I got the number for this guy and I called him up and, and I got his voicemail. And so I just, you know, pitched the log line real quick and I got a call back and, and he left me his email. So yeah, send it to me. And so I basically sent him like this, this, the, the pilot script and a pitch Bible for this thing. It was a, an, an adult animated kind of series. And, and he and he liked it, but you know, it got to a certain point, and then the whole the thing fell apart, and it didn't go forward. And and when I look back on it, like I I wrote it, but basically all I did was write a feature length script that was half an hour long. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I, I didn't structure it like television. And I did the same thing. I entered, um, you know, the NBC fellowship probably I don't know, four or five years ago with with a spec of The Office, and didn't take the time to watch a dozen episodes of the office and break down exactly like how the machine works. And, mm-hmm. and when I realized I was doing that, I was like, yeah, that's just, it, that's just common sense, you know? And so I, so when I started doing this, when I got out here, I thought I really need to know it's not, it's not the same as writing a feature. It's not the same as writing a play. It's a, it's a different beast. And so I sat down with, I can't tell you how many episodes of like breaking bad and Friday night lights and, and doctor who and all these things. And I would take me down and go, okay, it has, a teaser in four acts or five acts, and it's uh, each act has this many scenes, and they're about this long. And so I, it's funny because when I first started making the rounds with with Extant after I won the pilot, like one one guy that I was meeting with held it up. He's like, "God, you've been the perfect length." You know, it's like the, it's like the perfect weight. He was like weighing it in his hand. <laughs> so so I, I did it pretty well. You know, like I I, I built the I rebuilt the engine uh, pretty accurately at that point. Yeah, that's great. Between directing and writing those plays in Kentucky and coming out to Los Angeles where you won the Tracking Bee contest, when you moved to L.A., what did you do for work? Because it was a few years before – you've been here a few years, and it was a few years before you got Extant developed. Just out of curiosity, yeah. what, what were you doing between that, that, that time frame? Well, I was still you know, still going to a couple of theaters and doing the, um, the commission work. I was still writing oh, cool. a couple of plays for them. I would also do some video work. I would do editing, like promo videos and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But my primary job, and this, the thing that kind of led, all, uh, led to all this, was 
I was working for this motorsports company uh, called K&M, and they came out with this new motorcycle, three-wheel motorcycle called a Spider. And, and like a year before, um, I don't know, a year before, but I was already planning to move to L.A., and I entered this contest that they were having to be an ambassador for Can-Am. And you had to enter by writing a 200-word essay about yourself and why you think you're the perfect person for the job, and then to edit a video together. And so I actually won the contest, and the, and, and the prize for the contest was they were going to actually give you one of these motorcycles for free. It was yours to keep. And then they were also going to give you a stipend to write articles and shoot video uh, and, and, and take pictures and stuff while you're traveling around in the site. And it ended up going so well that they actually renewed us all for a whole other year. And, and I got a brand new, another brand new spider that was just a loner um, to, to ride cross country and take pictures and shoot videos and things. And then I also got another stipend and I ended up being pretty much half of my income for the year. And so for the first year and a half that I lived here, that's basically, that was basically like half of my, my day job. And I supplemented with the other stuff, like with the writing for those other things. And then around Christmas time, uh, my girlfriend and I were going home. She's from Chicago, and I'm from Ironton, Ohio. And uh, we were at, midway, at a midway point between Chicago and Ironton, uh, spending the night. And the guy who ran the program called and said, you know, we're going to the program, and we're, we, we're going to start something new next year, and it's been great, and you know, we wish you the best. And, and I hung up the phone, and I told Julia, I think I've got two options here. Like I can either just get a regular job in Orange County, which means I'm not going to be able to write as much. I'm not going to be able to 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 take these opportunities as they come. Or I could sell the motorcycle and I could live off that for a few months. And then after you know after I, I pick up some more work, I can buy another one in the in the fall if I want. And she's like, well, if that's what you want to do, go for it. So I sold the motorcycle when we came back after Christmas, and that's the money I used to live on. And it's and I also made this decision that I had this like small lump sum of money. And I just used it to invest in myself. So, so I entered the track and bee contest. I entered. Um, I was also doing this thing for um, the writer's store. They had this industry insider contest, which is a feature contest that I won. And I and I went. I I, I did that full time, like it was a studio job. You know, after that point, because I didn't have to, to do anything else for work. And I also put started putting up scripts on the blacklist. And so I just invested all this. In, in this money of myself, and I, and, and I started seeing it pay dividends right away. So I started getting, I got a couple calls from the blacklist scripts, and I got a meeting with the manager from that, and then I won this industry insider contest on a Friday, and then on a Wednesday is when I got the call from the um, from the tracking B guys and, and to say that I was a finalist in that. And so everything kind of came in an avalanche at that point. It was like almost like right when I took the leap for myself finally when there, when there was no net left, mm-hmm. that's when that's when it appeared. That's great. You hear so many uh, stories, success stories, and it sounds like these overnight successes. And when you really sort of dig deeper, there's so much more to it than that. But it's it's great how it sort of happened when it had to happen. And it happened when it was supposed to happen. Yeah. Um, but that's... Yeah, when I was ready for it. Yeah. And there were plenty of times along the way where I, where I thought I was ready for it, or I got really close. Like that, that time with the animated pilot with Spike TV, I felt like, ah, oh, this is it. The, the, the brass ring, it's right there. It's, it's a half an inch from my fingers. Or um, I was a semifinalist in the Nickel Fellowship about like eight years ago. And, and I thought, this is it. I started to get some calls about the script, and, 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 and this is the time. And, and what I realize now is that as much as I thought I was ready for it at those moments, I, I, w- I wasn't necessarily ready for it. But it was my turn with this when 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 these opportunities came up, I I just came in with a vengeance and and 
kind of knew who I was more and, and as a writer and had a lot of a lot more confidence in myself to, to deliver the thing that, that people were asking me to. Mm-hmm. And just out of curiosity, how many contests over the years do you think you've entered? Screenwriting contests. I mean, I, I would kind of go through a flurry of them every couple of years. When I had something new and I had something that um, that I thought had a shot. And so I know that I entered, like, I was a semifinalist in Project Greenlight 2. Hmm. That's probably the first one that I that I was in a long time ago. And and there was a Writer's Digest contest I entered with a play. And um, and then I entered, entered some more. There were a couple of years with the nickel that I'd entered that, that I didn't place that I was... And then one where I finally got like the the, you know, the honorable mention letter that's like you were so close. Right. Um, so so I, but so yeah, I would say I mean I dozens, I'm sure, probably probably twenty to thirty over the last ten years. Okay. And how many scripts have you written, including television, uh, over the years? Do you think? Probably, I would say well, TV pilots. I would say three total. And then feature-length screenplays, like just original stuff, uh, I guess it's probably around 20, 20 wow. right now. And then full-length plays, it's probably close to 15 or 16. Um, and then there's all, you know, like all the abandoned stuff. Those are the things that I actually finished, and, and they, are, they exist as a, as a complete story. But there are so many that yeah, died on the vine. Right. Uh- <laughs> They just weren't strong enough to survive. Right. They, they didn't keep your interest long enough. <laughs> exactly. That's like that. I mean, that for me is a real issue. And it, I was so heartened to find like so many other people had the same problem, which is like, I'll get midway into act two on something and right where it starts to feel like a, a bit of a uphill slog. There's all that, like that burst of inspiration when you start and mm-hmm. you, you, you're around that first corner and, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, this is work. I got to like, I, I really got to like force myself into this here to do it. And then all of a sudden that other idea that comes up, it's like, oh, I'm so much better. And, you know, I'm newer and shinier and just, just take some time and work on me instead, you know? And, and, right. and that happened to me so much. I had to like learn to ignore that or, you know, like write just enough to like put it down somewhere and then, and then full speed ahead on the thing I was working on. Cause I didn't think it distracted easily. <laughs> well, I think a lot of writers do. The internet is our greatest ally and our greatest enemy at the same time, I think. Oh my God. I can, I can kill time on the internet like nobody's business. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's super helpful when you're doing research because, you know, 20 years ago, if you wanted to research the CIA or anything in particular, you had to go to a right. library or whatever, but, you know, look up microfiche or something. <laughs> but now you just go right. to the internet. Um, yeah, and it's like it's in your pocket all day long. You can yeah. be at the, in the drive-through at In and Out and go, oh, what, what, "How do you transport uh, hazardous materials for my script?" Right. And you look it up. Absolutely, but then you've also got Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, and right. that just is a time killer. Uh, but yeah, because I used to think the same thing that uh, you know writing is is amazing when you finish, and, and at the beginning and at the end, it's really really pumped as a writer but then that whole middle portion right. sometimes it's such a slugfest in there that you really have to love what you're writing um <laughs> right to get through it it's hard you know yeah. like it's what that's what it gets hard that's where you realize like so many people don't keep going so many people don't finish because it does get like it gets to be work and and i'm, I'm now to the point where like where I, even though it's hard like i just i love it i love i love that i love the act not even just the idea of of coming up with the ideas or seeing it work, but the act of putting the words down on the page and the right words and the right, and I'm a little, I even have a little bit of OCD about 
placement on the page and the, and and physically how the page looks, you know, and, and the 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 action lines and that there aren't too many and that there aren't any widows hanging down, like little things like that 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 you find. I I find like the the fun and weird places to keep it going, mm-hmm. but um. But yeah, I mean, it can it can be a fight. But there's so many people I've met over the years. Oh, I've got this great idea. Uh, you know, if if you write it, I'll split the proceeds fifty fifty with you. Right. And you're like, no, that's that's the job. <laughs> you got to sit down and actually write the script. So. Yeah, I mean, and I think for multiple reasons. One, people who say I have a great idea, it's usually this malformed germ of an idea. It's not even right. a full concept. It's just. You know, a guy right, who's right. a skateboarder who sells <laughs> drugs or something like that, or is he's a DJ on a skateboard. It's like, well, that's not really an idea. That's a character or one sort of scene or something, but that's not a real story. Right. All writers have dozens of ideas that are not fully formed, that aren't written yet, that you could spend your time doing rather than writing somebody else's and giving them half. Right. Yeah, and I get so many of my own. It's like, I got, you know, I got more than I'll ever be able to finish. Even if right. I, yeah. If I live to be a ripe old age, I still have things. I have 50 journals laying around with half-formed <laughs> ideas of things that I'll never, you know, that I'll never get to. And uh, I, I, it just reminds me of the story that I heard I, I, from a, a, a established screenwriter. And I'll change the I'll change the detail just in case I'm not getting in trouble. But but they went innocent. on one of their first meetings. Yeah, to protect the innocent. They went on like a uh, you know a general meeting at one of the studios and. And all the executives said, I'm thinking of a, I'm thinking of a movie. I just got one word for you. Giraffes. <laughs> and that was it. There was no, there was no plot. There was no character. There was a story. Just someone in a movie about, and that wasn't giraffes, but, but that was basically what, what was, you know, pitched to this person. And, and it's just amazing that, yeah, yeah, now you just, you, that, I, boom, I just gave it to you. You go figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, that's actually better or worse, depending on how you look at it. Then, then one general meeting I I had I I don't even honestly it was so long ago I just honestly don't even remember who it was with it was a general and uh, I think it was a production company and they're like you know we I, I had been reading this article on uh, uh, in the New Yorker or something like that about Scrabble I want to I, I would like to, love to develop a movie about Scrabble I'm like oh so like would it be a, a comedy uh, or like right. a, a murder mystery like at a Scrabble competition someone dies like I don't know you know. <laughs> Let's just see what you can come up with. And I'm like, oh, my God. But uh, yours is actually substantially worse, I think, Giraffe. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, you've run into these things, and they just they think that this is an idea, but you they can't even give you any more description of what they're thinking other than some random thought, and they want you to run off, right. spend three weeks developing this idea, you know, creating all the beats and the characters and developing this to come and pitch it to them. And they're like, hmm, that's not what I was thinking. No, thanks. And, and, and that's where one, you know. Right, you have like you're just left with ink on your hands. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh man. So uh, I wanted to to go back really quickly to Extant and how you were finalist in the Tracking B, which again is is the dream scenario for a lot of writers. But again, I wanted to to make the point that there was a lot of groundwork and talent on your part put in before you entered one script, the first thing I ever wrote into a track, into a, a contest, and then, you know, you won it, and all of a sudden you're rich and famous and all that. Um, but what, <laughs> what I wanted to say is, uh, so you were a finalist in the Tracking Bee yeah. pilot contest. You ended up signing with Brooklyn Weaver as a manager, who obviously is one of the top in the business, uh, consistently sells more than any other manager in, in, in town. 
year after year. And uh, absolutely. Uh, and William Morris Endeavor, obviously, you know, right. doesn't get bigger. <laughs> right. So, uh, but I just wanted to talk to you about what was that process like? I'm sure they weren't the only people to approach you. And if, if William Morris is after you, I'm sure everyone's after you. So what was that process like of sort of filtering through the different agents and managers who were interested in signing you? What were you looking for? What were some of the, 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 the things that sort of differentiated uh, Brooklyn and William Morris that others didn't provide, or was it just sort of a comfort level? I, I just kind of wanted to to find out from you what that process is like, being chased by all these heavy hitters and then kind of having to, to pick, you know, sort of being that that uh, uh, high school recruit in in all right. the, the Division One programs chasing after you. It's I, it was and I and can be pretty harrowing at that point because you feel like. There was, a, there was a long period of time from the beginning of that process, even through, I mean, even through, I would say, shooting the pilot through the, you know, through the first few weeks of production and stuff, right, where I just felt like at any point I was going to do something to screw it all up, and it was all going to go away. Mm-hmm. You know, I was going to make one wrong move, one wrong decision, and, and I knew that wasn't rational, and I <laughs> knew it, but it was still like this sort of fear that I, that I, that I had. Like, even, you know, we sold the show, um, on my birthday, I basically was like, with the deal kind of closed the day before my birthday, and it was all announced on the day of my 40th birthday, and and the first thing I ever sold, first big thing I ever sold, my first job in television, and that was on a Wednesday, and um and then Thursday there was kind of a flurry of activity, and then Friday I woke up and there was nobody like it was radio silence. I didn't get any emails or any phone calls, and I sent out a couple. You know, a couple questions to like the team, to to maybe the agents or the man at the or Brooklyn or to the guys on you know at Amblin, and and by two o'clock nobody written me back, and I I was like that's it, I got fired. <laughs> like, it's all over, you know, like and just because for like a few, it was just a few hours of silence, you know, and so um, like that's kind of that's kind of where I felt from the beginning, like I was up on this, this tightrope with it, but I got this great advice. I, every meeting I went to from the beginning of this process, I would ask people, like, what's your advice for, you know, the person in my position? And and the two pieces of advice that I got consistently were, um, the first was, like, do you got to trust your instincts mm-hmm. and trust your intuition? And 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 they're going to be so much coming at you so fast. And you're going to feel like the, at any point you can make the wrong decision, but you've got to trust that, that you know what's right in your gut. You know, you may not even know why, but you've got to listen to it. And the other piece of advice was like, don't take on too much. Don't, don't promise uh, something that you can't necessarily deliver. And, and that was certainly like the, the advice I got when things started happening and, and you start to get all these offers to work with people. And, and you know, like the, the worst thing that you want to do is now turn in, turn in bad work. Right. And so, so when all that, when all that happened, I'll just go back and give you like the specifics of it. I got the call on Wednesday from the, um, the, tracking D contest. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know what, you're a finalist in the contest. We're going to try to get you represented and uh, and, and we're, we're starting to slip it out. So so you may get some calls from from agents or managers in the next couple of days. And and they were really great working with me in that. You know, they they were constantly calling and giving me the update and then I would get an email from a manager and set a meeting. Um, and on Saturday evening, and uh, the really funny thing about this was that's Wednesday. So Thursday as all this is going on. Like Julie, it was her spring break. And we had decided to go to Universal Studios mm-hmm. for the day. So I would go on a ride at Universal, and then I'd come back out and check my mail and you know answer things. And uh, you know, we'd ride the Transformers ride. And I'd come back. I'd be like, okay, I gotta check to see if I got any more calls from managers. Um, 
and then we actually took the tram tour that took us around by the by the Amblin building and uh, the Amblin offices and Amblin Drive. Like, hey, there's where, there's where Steve Spiller gets. So this is all I had no idea that you know a few weeks later I was going to get the call right. from them. But um, so Saturday night I got the call from Brooklyn Weaver, and he he called and said, "Look, I think that." I can change your life with the script. Like I, you know, there, there's no guarantee because the business is what it is, and you know, it's all that whole like nobody knows or nobody knows anything kind of kind of thing. He's like, but I really feel like we could do something with this. And and like you were saying, I had been reading about him forever because I, I I was on uh, script sales a lot on you know done deal. Mm-hmm. Um, always reading about there. Always reading about him on Deadline. Actually, the first time I'd heard about him was back in the Project Greenlight Two message boards, oh. because at that time he was kind of branching off on his own, and people were saying like, "This is a manager that will you can pitch him your log line if he wants to hear it. If he wants to read your script, he'll he'll read." Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I I think I pitched him something back then, and he politely he politely declined. And uh, you know, twelve years later, we eventually we eventually hooked up. But um, he so he called me that Saturday night, and and I just from his reputation and knowing him and 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 his enthusiasm and his energy, I said, look, let's do it. Well, I'm fine with you. And um, so he, he, there was a process on his part of starting to to slip it around town to other people. And um, and then it got to, to an agent at WME named Melissa Bauer, and she she passed it up to her, um, to the guys on her team on the TV side. And I got the call to come in and meet them, I, and I did have a choice in a couple of, a couple of different agencies. And it was at that moment, like, and that was one of the ones where it was like the sort of gut wrenching. I was at the crossroads. I knew like one way is the right way, one way is the wrong way. I'm just not sure, you know, which. Mm-hmm. And you have to use your 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 intuition at that point. And and it just felt like the right fit for me. It felt like the the not even just necessarily the personalities, but the way that they saw me as a writer and how I saw myself and and the way that things aligned and and it just I don't know. I just kind of knew. And so. I signed with them, and the very next day, we had our you know, our first kind of team phone meeting with all the agents and with um, with Brooklyn, and and that's the moment that they said, "Well, let's start at the very top with the script. Let's take it to the guy who does this better than anybody else, take it to Steven Spielberg." So at that point, I felt like I'd made a pretty good choice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd say so. Um, did you actually? But it is kind of like nerve wracking. Yeah. No, I bet. Um, now, did you actually ever? meet with other managers other than Brooklyn or was he pretty much it? You met him. It was the right fit done. I had a meeting with a manager, um, from the blacklist scripts and it was probably a couple weeks before I met Brooklyn. And, uh, I, I posted a script and you have on the blacklist. If you get an eight rating or above, it goes out in this, it, this email to all the agents, managers, production companies. And then, mm-hmm. um, so I had this script that was on the blacklist and it got me a meeting with this manager and, and he was pretty enthusiastic about the script, and we I, I sat down to meet with him. And and when he asked me about what else I had, it was like this. And it actually, wasn't it was a feature script, and it was a drama, like a crime fiction drama. And so when I started telling him about this other stuff that I wrote, this I, I made this comedy movie, and I made this, this drama, and I've written this, and I I just won this screenwriting contest for this other comedy, and uh, and I also have this this sci-fi pilot. Like I'm sure I've seen all over the map, and it's like. You know, it's a big piece of advice that they give the writer. It's used mm-hmm. to, you know, to pick their genre and stick with it. And right. and so when I was talking about these things, I could, I, I feel like the, the the tone of the meeting changes. Like well, I don't really know. Maybe he thought I didn't really know who I was yet mm-hmm. as a writer. And where for myself, I felt like you know, I'm a I'm a good writer. I'm a versatile writer. Um, 
and I'm not, you know, saying I should be able to do everything, but like I feel like I'm, I feel like I understand a lot of stories and can tell those stories. And and but what ended up happening to me in that meeting, he was like, okay, well, send me some more stuff, and then we'll, you know, we'll talk. And nothing ever materialized out of it. Mm-hmm. And so like, I, so I felt like you know, inside, I was like, fuck, I'm, you know, if I get that chance again, and somebody says, what is, you know, what else do you have? I'm just going to lie and say, I've got a bunch more stuff exactly like this thing you love. I'm just going to say, I'm just going to like push that. I'm going to say, yeah, this is the thing I do the best. This is the thing I love. And, and then I'm going to, and and luckily like I would have stuff to back that up. Um, but I'm not going to let that happen again, where, where I talk about five different things and have them, you know, glaze over and go, Oh, this guy's, he wants to do it all, you know? Um, so when it happened with Brooklyn, like luckily with Extant, it's, it was a genre piece. It was a drama. And it's exactly the kind of thing that I love to do and feel like you uh, do better than anything else. So mm-hmm. I ended up not having to lie about it, which is good. But um, but I did keep the other stuff on the shelf. Like I didn't really tell anybody about some of the other comedies and things for a while. <laughs> you said you've written 20-some features over the course of your years in filmmaking and, and screenwriting. But this is your first go-around in a writer's room. For you, it's yeah. just, again, since you're, it's so sort of new, since you're actually still in it, how is writing in a writer's room different than writing on your own on a feature? And do you have any sort of advice for how to sort of work in a writer's room uh, and, and do it in a way that's conducive to the whole process? Um, sure. Well, I think it's like when I when I knew that we were going to, to bring on a showrunner, I knew that I knew that was going to happen from the beginning, that, mm-hmm. that I was going to be working with somebody else. They were never going to hand over the the controls of, it's like, it's handing over tens of billions of dollars. Somebody's never done it before. I would say it's like, it's, it would be like learning heart surgery on the fly. You know, right. um, it's, it's high stakes for, for what this industry is. Sure, sure. And so I knew that I was going to be working with a, a showrunner and, and I, and I just made the decision early on that, that, that whoever it was, it was going to be a collaborative process, and 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 I was going to be open, and I was we were going to be partners, and 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 with Greg Walker, the guy that that became the showrunner for the show, from the moment we met, we had a very collaborative kind of spirit and a back and forth, and and connected on some of the deeper things themes of the show, and and right away I I, I was able to that wasn't just lip service then for to myself on my part, it was it was an easy thing to do to to make it as collaborative as possible. And because I wanted him to be, you know, to feel like it was his show, mm-hmm. it is. Um, and so I, I just had that same principle when I came into the writers' room, which is now we did we did basically a mini camp where we had um, four other writers uh, came in at first, and we and we kind of fleshed out the, more of the story for the big overall arc of the season, and then built it up at another writer, and that became like our official writers' room, and. Uh, I made that decision when, too, like even more so when everybody else came along too, which is this is our story now, and it's not it's 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 not just my vision. It's it's a collective vision at this point, and and certainly when you have partners like you know, Stephen and Hallie, they have you know uh, opinions and and uh, and input and 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 great stuff to add. And so uh, to me, the most tragic thing would have been happened is like is to, to hold on to something and not and to go you know this is my ball and 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 it's my way or this way. Um, I just knew that that wasn't, it's really not my style anyway. It's not the kind of person I am. Um, I think from, from being in the theater where it's such a collaborative kind of space. So I, oh. I just sort of slipped into it naturally. Um, and then when I realized when it came into the writer's room the first time, the, the, the 
few things that kind of struck me first were, one, it moves so fast. You know, like the ideas are, are, are flying around so fast, and, and people riff on things and they build on things that you really can't get entrenched into one idea. Like, I mean, you can, but it's to the detriment of the room. It's to the detriment of the story. Um, but you don't want to keep harping on the same old thing or keep going back to the same old thing. You can pitch something that you believe in a couple of times, and, but but you kind of have to keep up with the speed and the pace of everybody else in the room. Our room was really, really fast. It was hyperverbal and, you know, like <laughs> a lot of spirited debate and conversation all, uh, the entire day. Um, and then the other thing that I learned for me, like my part of my job was to, to not talk as much in the opening, in the beginning and, and to, to listen and synthesize just as much as it was to, um, to generate more ideas because I've already brought in a lot of stuff. I kind of brought in the foundation for it and, and with Greg and, and now we're bringing these other people and allowing them the space to, to fill it up with their ideas too. And so kind of early on in that, in that mini camp, I, I made myself listen more than talk at the beginning. And that was hard to do. Uh, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like probably in a writer's room, there's, there's an impulse, like I should say something here. I should be jumping in. And, and instead of just waiting for the moment that you really have something of value to add, or you really see the light through the tunnel or the, um, I was also a great podcast with uh, Robin Williams yesterday. Um, it was his his interview with Mark Marin on the WTF podcast. Oh right, right. And they were talking about the moment when you're when you're a comic and you're on stage or you're like in that that interview mode, and and you see the hole open up, and uh, it's like a like a running back who sees the hole open up on the field, and and they were describing that moment in comedy as like that's where you you, know, you jump through and 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 that you carry it and. and and it carries you through the performance. And it's the same way sort of in the writer's room. For me, I would jump in when I saw the hole. And and not the hole of, like, silence, but the hole of, like, there's the idea. I can see it. And and not only see it, but I can articulate it quickly enough that uh, to everybody else and in a way that everybody else can understand. Um, so, so I feel like uh, as far as tips for, for somebody new coming into it, I, I, I was pretty lucky because I got to see the, the, the meet and greet kind of process from the other side where – when showrunners are looking for writers to, to staff, the, it, you, we would go out to coffee with these writers, and uh, and I would read their stuff first, so I kind of knew their voice and knew what we were looking for, and 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 then when you sit down with them, I got to see what a good meetings look like and not so good meetings, and um, I think the most part is just having like it's just really being enthusiastic about the thing that you're that you're going out for and, and appreciation on it and an insight into it. And, and even the people that came in, you know, there were a couple of people that we met with that said, you know what, this really feels like it's about to me is this. And, and even if that wasn't where we were headed and, and wasn't the big underlying theme we were thinking of, it showed a thoughtfulness on their part. Mm-hmm. And they came in with questions and ideas. And there were people who, people who came in already like, you know, riffing on an idea or something that, but, um, I thought was interesting, but for the most part, it wasn't even necessarily about um, at that point about their take on the material. It was it was more about the personality and and how those things clicked. Um, because I think putting putting together a writer's room, it seems like it's it's like crafting a recipe, and you have to have all the right ingredients and the right the right personalities that mesh and click. And um, and 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 that's why I was so happy to go through this with somebody like Greg, who's who's done this so much and knows what that looks like. Right. And um, yeah, I, I think if you're a first-time showrunner, if you had to come into it and put together a room that you really don't, you wouldn't really know that right off, you know, and you might get, 
that get great writers, but there are people who are great in the room, but not great on the page, or vice versa. Great right. on the page, but they're like, you know, dead weight in a room. And so, um, so after having the benefit of going through that with somebody knowledgeable about it, now I, now I feel like, okay, I get a sense of what that is. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned, yeah, no, absolutely. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. um, but you had mentioned during that process, there were some, you saw good meetings and some not so good meetings, other than the things you had mentioned. But what were things that happened in some of the good meetings and things that may happen or may not have happened in the not so good meetings? Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes it's just like chemistry. It's just like being on a first date, mm-hmm. and you kind of know on the on the first date if if you know that's the, if there's going to be a second date. Right. And it was the same kind of thing. I think it's like it's sort of that same gut feeling about it. And sometimes that they're people that are easy to talk to, and you can tell that they're that they're creative and good natured, and and the kind of person that you want to be around for eight hours a day. Right. And or you know eight hours, you know ten, twelve hours a day, <laughs> right. five days a week for you know for months at a time, mm-hmm. and and so it's not even necessarily the, like the meetings that, that that weren't so good were like these you know the people were assholes or whatever. It was just it didn't quite click in the same way. And but I think it's, but I think in terms of like giving yourself the best shot, it's just being like as prepared as possible, sure. and 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 knowing the material backwards and forwards. And um, I can tell the people who 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 had read it two or three times and came in with really specific sort of pinpointed kind of insight. And then people who maybe just, you know, <laughs> who, who gave it a, a glance, or, you know, at Starbucks five minutes before he walked in and that kind of thing. Right. Um, so I think that that, I think the preparation is probably the biggest thing that you can do for it. And then hopefully it's some, it's material that you respond to and that you want to go for. Mm-hmm. And that's the natural enthusiasm for it. This will, will come across. Right. Especially extant being a pilot and not being, um, an ongoing series already. Uh, I'm sure they had less material to drop them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, there's, there was no Bible for the show, really, for people to, to. It was pretty much all they had to go on was the pilot script. Right. Um, and what, it, what it, the fun thing is, it became like. Though I remember the, some of the really fun meetings became these questions, like the big moral and ethical questions, and some of the, you know, the things that writers responded to were, um, the question of like the nature of the soul and what is human, and 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 when we. We talked about that stuff as much as we talked about the characters or the traffic. Mm-hmm. You know, those, those tend to be those tend to be really, really good productive meetings. So, what is the nature of the soul? <laughs> oh man, that's why I'm writing to try to figure it out. I'm asking myself that question all the time. And I would say that's like there's a scene in the pilot that is mm-hmm. the, the the character John, and he's delivering this presentation about humanics and about the prototype Ethan, his son. Right, and it's all about, and it becomes this debate with the board member about what is, you know, are we just this collection of of data, essentially, like our 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 experience and our dreams and our hopes and wishes and all this stuff? Is it, is it all just information, or is it something divine? And, and and you know, for me, I kind of wrestle with that stuff all the time. And, and writing that scene is a way to like give voice to the the two sides of my brain. They're like. Oh, this is pretty much it, man. Like you're a you're a meat sack with uh you know creativity, <laughs> or something that says no, you're a divine child of the universe and you were created. And, yeah, there that I think that inner fight is what actually led to writing the series. It is sort of one of those deep questions because if you take it again further and further and further back, I mean we're all just stardust. Ultimately, right. you know Absolutely. whether you're a machine or whether you're, you're a human being, you're created from the same molecules you were created inside of a star 
and we're all basically the same and you know energy and matter and all that it's all exactly the same it's just you know shaped differently i heard this great yeah exactly i read this great article the other day that that it was the idea was that you know if a, if a being from outer space could see us that that all that what they might see is this it's just the combination of atoms mm-hmm. there are trillions of atoms you know put together and it's really kind of like a, a part of like one of the ideas of the show is that that the, the the beings in the show can they can access your your memories and your hopes and your fears they can recreate you know these things for you and um and and yeah I I've always loved that idea that 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 we are all that we're all made of stars that we're all made of stardust and and that the same stardust that created Shakespeare created me and mm-hmm. and that there's a, that there I'm a part of that and that that, that stuff that I I find that no less miraculous than if it was a if it does turn out to be, we're all divinely created by some other, sure. you know, omnipotent being. Right. And then you can also look at, I don't remember who said it, I think therefore I am, meaning yeah. technically we're all just, you know, molecules, atoms. But right. the fact that you have cognizance of your own existence is what separates, you know, living beings from non-sentient or you know, inanimate objects, but I don't know. Anyway, so well, that's what's exciting to us about. I mean, that that is what's so much fun about the show. It's like looking yeah. at these ways to to explore that question in a dramatic sense, and then and then the idea of like not only the question of what is human, but but how do you imbue uh, something artificially created with that, and at right. what point can it become you know can it can it transcend and 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 become more human, uh, or 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 become better than human? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that ultimately it's sort of this sci-fi mystery show. But yeah, like you said, you delve into all these really deep concepts, which I think is is fascinating, which is what makes it sort of, you know, more than a a mystery science fiction show. Yeah, we're we're certainly trying to say that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I have to touch on, on something that I read. I read in Entertainment Weekly, though, that Steven Spielberg on occasion sat in the writer's room to brainstorm a little what is that? Like? Yes, it's. I can't say it. Well, Greg Walker, the our showrunner boss, says it best. He was like playing tennis with the best player in the world. Yeah. Where you know you're you're gonna you're gonna send your lob over the net, and they're just gonna smash it back. You you got to be ready. You got you got to be ready to to swing. And um, I mean, it's everything that you hope it would be. He's. I don't know if you've ever read that thing. It's kind of floating around the internet. I don't know if it's it, it, how many people out there have read it, but it's the story um, session between. Spielberg, George Lucas, and I think Lawrence Kasdan. It's like, you know, they're all sitting around talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. And and they're basically like breaking story and kind of brainstorming it. And there's a transcript of, of it that was taken. And and you're reading that, you go, oh, it's so cool. It's just like he's just sitting around a table, those guys, mm-hmm. and they're doing the same thing that we do in the writer's room, you know. And and when I saw him in the writer's room, I kind of realized that what well, happened the very first time I got to, to talk to him we were creating this sort of overview document for us to pitch from, and and we were talking to him a lot of uh, on over the phone. It was the very first time I'd spoken to him, and it was it was over the phone. We were talking about all these big ideas in the show, and we were kicking things back and forth. And 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 there, I had that out of body experience for a second, where I was like, oh I'm brainstorming science fiction ideas with Steven Spielberg. This is like, this is crazy, and and then to have to go from that to actually have him show up in the writers room and sit down with us and. And and talk through some of these ideas and kick it back and forth. It's like he's he's still a guy who loves cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's still you know for all the. And I was thinking about it the other day about him because he's he's gone to so many dark places 
uh, lived in dark worlds in, in some of the movies that he's created now, like, you know, with, with Schindler's List and Amistad and, mm-hmm. and, and, and Saving Private Ryan. It's, you know, these things, there's, he always finds the humanity in them, but also, like, they're, they're tough places to live for longer periods of time you're making these movies. And, and, um, and the thing about the, you know, the fact of like to go through all that and still be able to come in the room with us and talk about goo, you know, which plays a part in our show is, is pretty awesome. You know? And, and, uh, so it's, it's kind of everything that you, everything that you imagine and hope and dream it would be. And it's just that cool. I mean, it's like playing on a basketball team with Michael Jordan or I guess LeBron James or Kobe Bryant. Yeah, exactly. And then, and, and sometimes where they're like, you know, imagine like one of them lifting you up to allow you to dunk (laughs) (laughs) or passing you the ball. Uh, so you can shoot it, knock down a three or something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's amazing. Um, I I had to ask that because, you know, obviously, uh, yeah, of course I I, I like millions of others are, you know, huge Steven Spielberg fans. And that I think would be pretty unbelievable, but that's, that's fantastic. Well, when you think about like the stuff that he, I mean, for people my age, and I'm sure yeah, for for decades up and decades down, and there's mm-hmm. a whole, whole, you know, decades worth of people who have been influenced by his his work, and it's yeah. and not just the stuff that he directed, but the stuff that he produced, and the you know the Amblin films, like that really was the 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 voice that informed like my creative DNA. Now, I mean, with along with like Star Wars and stuff too, which he might may as well have been a part of because he's such good friends of Lucas and they, they shared so many of um, the same ideas and things, but like, you know, back to the future and who framed Roger Rabbit and mm-hmm. gremlins and all these, like, and these are all like things that were my absolute favorite things at the time. They're mm-hmm. my favorite movies and the, the movies I obsessed over. And I bought the, the books and the comics. And I, I bought the Neil Diamond Heartlight song and played it over and over again. <laughs> EP. Yeah. And I went to CET a few weeks ago at the arc light and I hadn't seen it in forever, and and I saw that it was playing there, and I got to see it on the big screen, and it was it was so beautiful to see it work again, and there were kids in the audience and people laughing at all the right stuff, and I, yeah, it's it's amazing what that guy's been able to accomplish. Yeah, and his work is timeless, it really is. It's absolutely timeless. I I would be remiss if I didn't at least touch base on what's coming up with Extant. Kind of knew from the beginning that it was a, a limited series, and with the possibility of of being renewed for a second season. So, since it, since it was kind of one of those things that was up in the air whether we'd be able to come back or not, we made the decision to make it a complete story, okay. and to really, um, you know, to, to wrap things up in a satisfying way mm-hmm. for fans, and, and and answer as many of the questions as we could, and then and then by the end to leave to leave an idea of here's a room, here's where we grow, and here's where we go in a season two, mm-hmm. and so we have all those ideas too, but we wanted to make sure that we that if this is it, if it was you know one and done, that 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 people felt like they had they had just seen like a big three act movie, and right. so so that's what's coming up. And then um, you know we're waiting word to see if we are going to get a season two. It's um, shows over the last few weeks has stayed kind of steady in the ratings. It's not a it's not the blockbuster I think everybody you know on our team had hoped for, and, but but it's staying steady and we have a great core audience and um, you know we're all live tweeting together every. Uh, every Wednesday night through the show. And uh, so I get my fingers crossed. I'm really hopeful because I feel like we have the world that we set up. There's a lot of story to tell and there are a lot of ideas. And those, I mean, that, that essential question, you could play it out in so many ways dramatically. And, and, and we have such a great cast and, and um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic about it. Um, but if this is it, if this is, if, if, if our finale is the end of this 
chapter, then I then I think fans are going to like it. I think they're going to think they're going to enjoy it, and and anything that's not resolved, I'll I'll answer on Twitter after. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice of you. Um, well, yeah, yeah. We're sort of running low on time. We have a section called Rapid Fire, which are just uh, a few really quick questions that I want to throw your way. Um, the first being, if you had to play fellow Ironton native Marion Tinsley, who is considered the greatest checkers player ever, to a game, what? which would you choose and why? Darts, Battleship, or Beer Pong? Ooh. I would have to go with Battleship. Um I'm not I'm not an ex- experienced beer pong player at all, huh? and darts I'm kind of mediocre. Okay. But I really feel like I I, I feel like against a checkers player I could I can match with a battleship. <laughs> gotcha. Is that true? Mar- Is that yeah, true that's... for Myerton, Ohio? There's. Yep. Marion Tinsley considered the greatest checkers player ever. I, I had read that uh, he'd lost only seven games in his entire life, two or to a computer or something, and he won nine world championships or something. So yeah. <sighs> Man, I think you just gave me my next pitch. <laughs> there you go. I was actually going <laughs> to, I actually twisted it because I didn't know if you knew Marion Tinsley, but I was going to be like, well, okay, Marion Tinsley, also fellow Arrington native, considered the greatest checkers player ever. Pitch me the, the film or TV series you base on him. But I, again, I didn't know if you knew anything about it. <laughs> I didn't. I had to do research on it. But um, That's yeah. amazing. I got to look that up. Yeah, go for it. I mean, you, yeah, Marion Tinsley. There you go. What should the name of Molly's offspring be? Tiger, Holly, or Ingle? Oh, gosh. I feel like it's got to be Tiger. Like, that. this is all just like an origin. Uh, uh, yeah, well, actually, an origin story. And then he goes back in time right. to become the greatest ball forever. And for yeah, li- that, that's the finale of the series. Right. And for listeners who may not be as familiar um, with Extent, although you should watch it, Molly, his last name is Wood. So, anyway. That's uh yeah. And I think that like at some point we should tilt we should tip the hand toward that and I wish we'd done this, which because this does take place, you know, fifteen, twenty ish years in the future. Right. That there was some gigantic statue of Tiger Woods, you know, like a colossus <laughs> that they had built of him in Florida, you know. Right. I-, I was rooting for Holly personally, but you know, you're you're the, ah. you're the creator here. Tiger Tigers <laughs> you gotta and it does open a whole bunch of other storylines, so that's pretty awesome. Um, Holly is pretty great though, yeah, you're right. Um, and which is your favorite movie? National Velvet starring Mickey Rooney, Short Circuit featuring Fisher Stevens, or the Jeff Bridges dramedy The Fisher King? Oh man, The Fisher King for sure. Nice. But I but I have to say that Short Circuit was on uh, endless repeat uh, when that when I finally got the VHS of that. Yeah, absolutely. When I was a kid. I didn't go all the time. It's a classic. Johnny Five, man, you can't go wrong. <laughs> absolutely. And um, the old Bar song, "Who's Johnny," which is like I. Sure, I had the forty-five of that too that I wore out. That's hysterical. You know all the the soundtrack <laughs> songs too. Not only do you know the movies, you oh, know yeah. the soundtrack songs. That's awesome. I have a quote oh, yeah. for you that yeah. I wanted to run past you. Quote: If people aren't paying attention to you or what you're creating, it's not that you're not working hard enough. Keep doing it until you make something so great that people can't ignore it. That they must pay attention to it. Something that they're passionate about, that they have to tell other people about it. It's our responsibility to keep going until we get there. Thoughts? Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, did I say that? Yeah, that's Mickey Fisher circa 2010. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I got to the point where I realized, like, I just, the responsibility is on me. I, I, if, I'm, if, if I'm writing and putting these things out in the world and people aren't responding to it, it's not their fault. It's just, 
it's it's either a failure of uh, of message or I'm just not writing the thing that they're getting passionate about. And I and I just put that on myself. I'm not saying it's always the case, but there are plenty of there are plenty of artists throughout time who who didn't get their due in their day. You know, like like painters, you think that they created these masterworks and they were never seen. Like George Surratt, who painted uh, a Sunday Island on the afternoon uh, Sunday afternoon on the island of Le Grand Jacques, and it was never recognized in his time. And so so there is a flaw in my argument, but uh, hmm. but I felt like for me as a writer to push myself forward, I. I, I had to take the responsibility on myself. And I went to this, um, to one of the comic cons, uh, to WonderCon a couple of years ago. And I sat in a panel of TV writers. And one of the writers said, look, if you're not getting attention, it's because your, uh, your sample isn't good enough. You know, when your sample is good enough, then people will, mm-hmm. people will start responding and they'll call you. And I just took that to heart. And I thought, you know what, if the, I'm going to, if the, even if it isn't true, I'm going to act like it is and just keep going and going and going until someone responds and, and write more and write better, you know? Well, and I think it absolutely is is true in multiple ways. The first being that, like you said, if you write something truly great, people won't be able to ignore it. But so many people, younger writers, especially newer writers, think that other people are the problem, that the agents, production companies, right. whoever they're writing, they don't like it. Well, that's their problem. Right. They don't get it. It's, 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 they, they're not smart enough to understand my work or whatever. Their taste isn't good, whatever, instead of just writing something that is so great that because if it is great people will find it you yeah. know um and, absolutely and again also when you mentioned you're, it's not that you're not working hard enough you know because so many people think i put so much work into this that it it has to be great and it, people have to pay off my hard work well if it's not the thing if it's not good enough or it's not the right thing then you just have to keep going about it you know it's our quote unquote it's our responsibility to keep going until we get there if you truly love being a screenwriter being a filmmaker you have to keep doing it absolutely and i mean that's the thing too i always feel like no matter what i always have if i've got paper and a pen Mm -hmm. i can i can i can write the next thing and it's going to be better than the last Mm -hmm. you know like i'm i'm if i keep pushing myself if i just don't stop and and you know, if I'd stopped it for the first couple of screenplays and, and I've sent in the query letters and said, this is the best I can do, and and uh, I never would have gotten any farther than, right. than that point. And even like when I sat down to write this, I, I put a post-it note on my, my favorite writer at that moment was Stephen Moffat, and he's still one of my favorite writers. Mm-hmm. And I put a post-it note on the top corner of my of my computer screen, uh, WWSMD, what would Stephen Moffat do? <laughs> and, I was like, and I thought about that all the time, and I was like, he would just write it better. You know, he would keep going until it was better, and and I just I would look at my look at the scene I was working on, look at the look at the script, and I go, how do I make this better? How do I keep pushing myself? And and I think that that's you know like that and that's an important that's an important part of it. And and like you said, it's just you you can't stop. Well, I'm I'm, I, I'm quoting you, <laughs> but no, it's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you this: I, like the two things, the two biggest things that. Um, I felt over the last year of this process, you know, cause I was at it for such a long time and I was constantly putting stuff out there. And, and, and so when I finally did sell this thing, it was a validation of, of that belief, you know, that the exact thing that you, that you said, which like, yeah, like, yeah, I finally wrote something that people, that a lot of people were really interested in mm-hmm. and really wanted to make. And, and, and so it was a validation of that belief. It was like the, it was this thing that I knew that like, in my heart, that if I just kept at it long enough, that I would eventually get my shot. You know, if I would, I would write something so good that, that, that somebody would pay attention. Um, and so that was like validated. But then the flip side of it is, 
is that I also had this moment uh, and, and, and still have it of like, it, it does take that little element of luck to, mm-hmm. you know, like the right person. I entered the right contest with the right script um, and, and the right people passed it up. And, and, and maybe at any point along that chain, if one person, this, if the guy in the contest, uh, if I hadn't been a finalist or if Alyssa Bauer at WME had said, you know, this really isn't for me or, or Brooklyn's assistant, you know, who's doing the coverage for him, happened to pass it on him in Brooklyn. Like at any point, somebody could have just put it to the side and said, hey, it really isn't our thing. And it's a different story. Um, but, but for myself, the thing like the, I can like, lay away and think about it at night and sometimes it's kind of terrifying, but I'd know again, like I would wake up the next day, no matter what, I would still be writing. Right. If I was still living in Orange County at the moment, I'd still be in a Starbucks today and I'd be writing my next, my next spec. So, well, plus the thing is that that's the thing that I love to do. Yeah. And you know, what, what you'd said before about keep going and that, it is about partially about luck. Anyone who makes it, there is luck involved, you know, to get that chance. But the longer you keep going, the more opportunity there is for that to happen. And for the, right. like, you have to do the work. You have to grow as a, as a writer, as an artist, as a creator, and you have to do the work because if the opportunity comes, i.e. you run into Steven Spielberg or, or Brooklyn Weaver, what else do you have? And if you don't have anything, it, you, you missed that potential opportunity. So you have to absolutely there's so much right about what you said that uh, I, I just had to repeat. I didn't know if you remember you said it or not. I thought that was kind of, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I did. It sounded vaguely familiar. At least, so, at least uh, as you're, as you're, when you started, I was like, man, that sounds great. Who wrote that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I did not. I did not think that. No, but it is. It, it's great. And it's absolutely true. And again, it's true in multiple ways. Um, and it's something that I think that, a lot of because uh, we get emails from all kinds of, of aspiring writers and some of them are, are questions that, you know, are, you know, what's the best way to approach someone? How long should query be? And then some of them are like, I wrote a script. How do I sell it? And, and that's sort of right. the wrong attitude. It's, you know, it's not so many people think you write one thing. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to that. That's the end all be all. And right. it, it can it's happen. A Blair, right. right. Exactly. But. If, if this is your career, if this is what you want to do, you want to be a screenwriter, there, there's a lot more that goes into it. And a lot of it's just yeah, writing. Like, yeah. So, I mean, I always thought that it's, it's a marathon. You know, mm-hmm. It's not a sprint. It's it. And it's, and it takes an, uh, a knowledge of the, the craft that takes time to, to, to learn and, and, and to put into practice and to be ready to, to when you're, when you're called on to, to deliver and, and then uh, uh, the merging of that craft with your own creativity and with your ideas and, and with the artistic side of it. And, and I mean, there's so much development to it that, that I feel like if you're, if you're in it for like the lottery, you know, like the, the, you might as well just buy a lottery ticket you right. know, if, if the idea is because the, you know, the odds eventually are about the same, which is like, I have this one great idea. I'm going to sell it for a million dollars and retire. Right. Uh, you, you might as well just sit in the lottery, but if you're looking at it as a career and, and a, a long-term idea and it's something that you love and, and something that you're really interested in. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the thing. If, you, if you're passionate enough about it, you're going to put that time in anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. You're going to get through that slogging second act. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you're going to put your butt in the chair and you're going to, and you're going to figure it out. Yeah. Absolutely. And you're going to be happy you did it. I mean, that's the other thing too, like even for all the, the, the sort of like the, the, the slugging it out, it's so worth it for those moments where it's mm-hmm. like, you you figure that one thing out, you get that one that one great line, and it's just it's it can be exhilarating. And 
I was watching. I can't remember what it was. I think it was uh, in the writers' room that uh, TV show that you know brings together writers from different TV series. And I was watching the one on Breaking Bad, and I remember seeing Vince Gilligan and how he was talking about how like he struggles. Literally, he's banging his head against the wall trying to get episodes <laughs> of Breaking Bad to to work. Like he just hit a wall or hit a block, hit a stumbling block, and, and couldn't get certain things to work. He couldn't break the story, you know, whatever. And I'm thinking, right. if a writer as amazingly, brilliantly talented <laughs> right. as Vince Gilligan is banging his head against the wall trying to get something to work, I have no. I mean. I, it exactly. should be difficult if he's having if he's struggling. <laughs> you know, it's it's okay. I'm, I should be lucky to have hair, right? right exactly, exactly. I, I I should be lucky not to have a concussion because I mean it's it, it's it's difficult. I mean it's a tough process if you really care about what you're writing. It's it's the people who don't do that who aren't struggling who probably may be less successful because they don't they may not care enough because obviously he cares a lot right. and he wants he, he he really wants it to work and he. Bust his yeah, ass. He wants to be great. Yeah, he want, exactly. He wants to be great. Not good enough, but great. And that's why Breaking Bad was what it was, I think. He's just so amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and, that, and that's the thing you're up against television, too, because it really is, I mean, there, there's only so much money and only so much time. Yeah. And so that sort of thing you're up against is like, as much as you want to wrestle with it and as much as you want it, uh, to make it as great as possible. And at some point, that, that production train has to stay on the tracks. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's the good thing about television is it allows you to like, you, you, you can't wallow in it forever. You got to eventually make choices and trust that you're, that you're doing the right thing. And, and again, you're going to make some mistakes, but you're also going to, you're going to do a lot right. And at the end of the day, hopefully you do a lot more right than you do wrong. Right. And uh, hopefully you guys don't beat your heads on the walls too often, but uh, <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I love what you guys are doing with Xtant and uh, hopefully you guys get, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show, Mickey. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you all. Yeah. And, and anybody out there, I just, I, yeah, best of luck to you and, and uh, all brothers and sisters in arms. And uh, good luck. Yeah. And you can follow Mickey on Twitter at MickeyFisher73. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>